Hi, and welcome to episode three of We Are WebVid, a series of podcasts that discuss all things creative with the creatives themselves. I'm Neil Bentley, CEO of WebVid, a London-based creative agency that works with brands, events, and companies to supercharge content from video and animation to social media, podcasting, and print. I'm actually live from our podcast studio, which is brand new here in Oval in London, which is available to rent out. You can find more information about that at webvid.com. So, in today's episode, I'm incredibly pleased to be speaking to one of the funniest, the nicest, most consistent, intelligent comedians on the circuit today. Uh, A person that is not only recognisable on TV, uh, as well as in the written word, but he's on radio as well. In fact, he's everywhere. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Dominic Holland. Neil, thank you very much indeed. You have so obviously done radio before, sir. Firstly, thank you so much for coming on. I know how busy you are. I want to know your journey into and through comedy. And I especially want to know when it all clicked for you that comedy was where you wanted to excel. Well, that was very early, actually, Neil. When I was a little boy at school, I was floundering a little bit. I was very young for my age, very small. So I struggled in the sports teams, struggled academically. Um, But the only thing I obviously knew that I was very good at and better than or at least as good as my peers was being funny. And so I can make I can make kids in the class laugh, and then at home with my parents' fa- uh, friends, I could also make them laugh. And that was something which I I clung to because I realised it was something where I had some leverage and I had some ability. So that was maybe about ten. I reckon I was about ten, and then I um, enjoyed the idea of being funny. I enjoyed my school reports saying Dominic should spend less t- more time trying to become academically. Um, proficient rather than just getting laughs and and then I started to go on dog walks and do monologues to myself um, that I always thought would, were funny and I wouldn't it be wonderful if I could do this as a career so from a very young age comedy um, gripped me and and became something which I wanted to pursue but I, I, I just didn't have the confidence perhaps that some of the very successful comedians have so for me it's always been um, a, a leap for me to get from from the page onto the stage. Well, every time we kind of meet up and talk, we talk about new things, we talk about challenges, we talk about how we can better ourselves. And I do find that you're a person that really enjoys a challenge. Um, and I, I, I think you're quite hard on yourself sometimes. My career hasn't, hasn't gone as I hoped it might, but that isn't to be down on myself. I love being a stand-up comic and being a, an author, but it isn't easy, and so I just I wouldn't I wouldn't be on your podcast saying you know what I'm so busy I am the man I'm batting off offers because it's not it's just not it's just not the case. So it's really interesting to hear you speak like that because as an outsider looking in on your career, I would have loved to have like half the success that you've had, but you've got some really high markers like for yourself, haven't you? Uh, yeah, well that's very generous of you, Neil. But you know I'm just I'm just being honest. I'm just being very candid. You know if you're doing a one man show. And you know, you, you know, you're worried about whether there's any, going to be anyone there. That isn't that isn't a great um, uh, that isn't a great place to be as a creative. You know, so so my writing becomes more important because the longer I'm not on telly, the harder it is to get punters to come and see you work live. Because the venues, uh, as I say, that they are entirely television based, and you watch your TV schedule. If you haven't got one, they're not going to give you a gig. So therefore, you have to become creative in booking the gigs. You've got to you've got to find you know, people galvanize people who like your gear and want you to come to their area and put you in a room. 
So that that create that 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 requires creativity. So yes, I have had some huge successes. I've done the Royal Variety Show, and I've had big big books being successful. But you know, to to stay up there and to stay current without exposure of radio and telly is 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 very challenging. And that's just the reality. That's not me being falsely modest. When you were gigging a lot, a lot of travelling, a lot of hard work, did you ever consider giving up then? Did it all feel too much? Or did you just get caught up in it because everything was so good? I would never have given up, Neil. And I haven't given up now because I love, you know, I love rocking a room. You put me in front of it. You put me in a packed room where there's a thousand people or 200 people. I'll make them laugh for an hour and a half. I rarely see a comedian handle a room like you do, especially in the way you do it, which is... A very unique, kind of really calm, intelligent, well thought out, considered way. Well, I'm I'm a, I'm an everyman. That so my shtick is that I'm an everyman. So I am them effectively. Okay, so when I go on stage, you get high status Jimmy Carr, you get low status uh, Mark Watson, and then you get everyman, which is me. So I go on as them, and I'm so I'm a very accessible comedian because. Albeit they're not me, they're not on stage, they're thinking, God, thank God I'm not on stage. I represent the everyman. So it's a very powerful way to make people laugh, and I really make people laugh at themselves. So that's a very, again, a very attractive way to make people laugh. And I can do it, and I, I do it really well. So in answer to your original question, I would never have given up. And, and, and even doing gigs now, I was in, where was I the other day? I was in Oakham, up in uh, Nottinghamshire sort of way. I got paid buttons, but it was a long drive, but I ripped... I ripped the ass out of the gig and I was on stage thinking, you know what, this is great. I can do this. This is something I can really do. It's, it's a great skill. It's a bloody lovely skill to be able to do because you're giving people a night and they're going to be at work tomorrow saying, Joe, what do you say? What, how do you say that? What, what was the thing he said? Remember Dominic Holland said that? Yeah. And these things last for a long time. People in their memories will say, I saw you. I had a guy come up to the other day and goes, I saw you. And he told me about the gig. And it was like 15 years ago. And he said, oh, we still talk about that gig. And that's very heartening to hear as a creative person. And it's a good reminder of what you're doing. You're not working for an insurance brokerage. You're just a, you know, I'm a bloke who's self-employed, have been all my, li <clears throat> all my life. And it's very, um, it's a very gratifying way to make a living. I mean, I'm sitting in my lovely house in London. My four kids are all doing well. Everything I've, everything around me has been paid for by being funny. That's an amazing thing. If you said to me at the start of my career, you're going to do, you're going to sit in this nice house when you're 50 odd and everything will have been coming from being funny. I would have thought, wow, I'll take that all day long. What has been your massive high and massive low with gigs? The massive high is, is um, nailing a one man show, having a one man show that's full. I mean, I used to do one man shows all over the country and they were packed and I would be as good as any stand up in the country. They're, they're in, they, they are euphoric when the rooms are full. Um, the low for me would be being published for the first time and, and then being fired by my publisher based on book sales. That was a massive low for me. I've never really recovered from that because for me, writing is an absolute, it's like playing the piano. You know, I can't play the piano, but when people do play the piano, they clearly love doing it. And that writing for me is my playing the piano. If I can make a living out of it, then fantastic. But it's something you're continuing to do with, with writing novels, isn't it? I don't think I, I could ever do that. I'm in awe of people like you that can keep an idea focused that long and put it down uh, in type. I mean, it's incredible. Well, you say that, Neil, but I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a good person for people to be listening to because I failed English language O-level. Yeah. You know, I was not an academic kid at school. I can write. I always say to people, if you can speak, you can write. Yeah. Like, if you... 
you know, people say, oh, God, your dialogue's so good. Well, actually, if you can speak, you can write dialogue. You just have to imagine it in your mind. But I write books because I have these stories in my head, and I think they're very worthy stories. And, and so actually putting them onto paper is just a sheer case of willpower and grunting it out because you can rewrite a book so many times to get it good. Whereas in stand-up, you get one chance. You've got to go on stage, get the room, keep the room, get off. With writing a book, you can have 25 stabs at it. So take me through your novels. Where, which one did it start with and where are you now? Well, the first people say um, your first novel is always autobiographical. Um, it's always based on your life. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. So I was basically in Los Angeles back and forth with, with scripts that I'd written. So I'd written film script, screenplays and I had them sold, I sold them, I had directors attached, it was all very exciting. I had a meeting with Norma Heyman, who is David Heyman's mum. David Heyman produced all of Harry Potter, Norma Heyman, um, her husband produced Training Day. You know, they're a very gilded family. And Norma called me the new Frank Capra. She said, she had, I'd written a, a book called, uh, a script called The Faldovian Club, which she bought from me. And I was incredibly excited. Nikki, my wife and I were like, bloody Dom's going to become a film writer. That's a bit like Richard Curtis, you know. And I was incredibly excited. I was in these exciting meetings. And of course, it all fell over. And basically, you know, as most films do, I didn't get it set up. And, it, and I thought to myself, you know, this is all about getting my film in onto the right desk. And if I could get this film onto you know, a Scott Rudin's desk or someone like that, or Harvey Weinstein before this furore, it would get made. And that inspired my story of, of, of uh, a character who'd written a script. It falls into the hands of, um, uh, you know, a studio boss. And he loves this film and, and thinks that his people have developed it. He charges them with making the film and she has no idea they've got it. So there's a hunt for this writer and she has, a bit like Cinderella, and she has no idea that this her film script is creating this pandemonium in states. So it's a very romantic, funny story, a lot of um, uh, mismatches and miscommunications and and um, near misses, and it's a love story, and it's very, very funny. It's an overt comedy story. That's my first novel. So that really, my life, my failures as a film writer inspired the novel Only in America, which was then sold as a film. I sold it a couple of times as a movie, um, and it, it didn't get set up. And then that story inspired my story eclipsed about my, my son becoming a movie actor and unbeknownst to me, whilst I was trying to become a filmmaker, my little boy through sheer, through sheer dint of opportunity and good luck became a film actor. So that's, that was, that's, that accounted for eclipsed. And then my other stories are just, I, I have a kernel of an idea. And then I spent a lot of time probably subconsciously embellishing it and, 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 and building on it and working on it and trying to work out how it could be, how it could conclude. And when I've got it in my head, I then have to write it because I think this is a brilliant story. And I don't think there are that many great stories out there, Neil. I think a lot of novels written by brand authors are pretty awful, but the publishers say, look, whatever you publish, whatever you write, we'll publish. So are you now with your novels um, self-publishing? Yes, yeah. I, I didn't try and get republished. I tried to get Eclipsed published, the book about Tom and I. That was turned down because Tom wasn't famous enough. That was before Tom was cast as, as um, in the Marvel movies. But I, I haven't since gone back to them and said, okay, now he's really famous. Do you want to publish this book? Because I just, I'm used to doing it myself mm -hmm. and I put them out there. I propagate them myself. 
I, I put them on the various channels, um, Kindle, Amazon, print on demand. And you know what? It's pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty, um, it's pretty liberating, you know, that I can put a book out there. I'm, I'm republishing one of my books from yesteryear. I'm going to republish it this year, give it a bigger platform, give it a new title, a new jacket. I'm rewriting the manuscript. And I don't feel, um, I feel excited. I think, you know, this, this book could break through. It's a great story. And this could be the one. And, and that's the hope I was talking about earlier. In comedy, well, I think in any creative endeavour, you, you have to have hope. You see, that's why I think it's so exciting for you um, going forward, because I think with technology, you know that I'm a, a big lover of technology, um, especially the internet, especially the channels it opens you up to. When you are like you and you have so much talent and a body of work, whether it's stand-up, whether it's sitting in front of a camera and presenting, whether it's writing, there's so many avenues that your work can be discovered and you can push it out nowadays even compared to three or four years ago. I do agree with you. It's, it's, it, it is very empowering, the fact that you can circumvent these gatekeepers. Okay, the people saying no to you, at the publishers or the BBC or whoever, Channel 4, you can circumvent them by going on YouTube. And I'm very... Um, my son showed me a, mo- uh, a clip of a stand-up called Andrew Schultz, a Jewish guy working out of the States, really obviously got a great big brain on him. Mm. Um, and he's basically putting on YouTube and has become a bit of a sensation. I'm sure he's filling rooms in America now. And that's very enticing. And I have some clips that I, don't, I, I intend to load up. But, you know, for me, I've never embraced technology, Neil. And I've only just recruited some professional people to help me. You have gone on to Facebook Lives and some YouTube videos featuring yes, your Yes, just of late, yeah. Yeah, tell me, tell me about that. And tell me how it is doing these, these sorts of things with your sons as well. Well, I, I write a blog. And the blog is pretty successful. It's well, it's well read. I'm, I'm sure a lot of that is because of who Tom is. Um, but I write well. I, I do enjoy writing. And I write on basic life, basic little quirks of life um, about my life and things that I observe. So that comes out every week. And that's got a big following. And through that, a few people contacted me and said, look, you know, Dominic, I think I could help you. So um, one of them was a lady called Morna, who uh, works for a company called Puzzle. And she, we had a chat and a meeting and we seem to have a, you know, so she's been encouraging me and helping me and, and o- o- opening my mind to things like Facebook Live. So, uh, and I did a podcast with Sam. Um, ideally, I do one with Tom, but I'm very conscious um, that Tom is, you know, trying to square being as public as he is and wanting to retain his privacy as, as much as he can. If you could choose your ultimate profession... Would it be comedian? Would it be number one selling author? Would it be professional golfer? <laughs> it would be it would be a number one selling author because I it's far less attritional than being a stand up comic. Um, it's a great gig and I love being on stage doing well, but I don't enjoy the anxiety of are you booked? Are you going to get booked? And some of the gigs I do are are momentously hard. If you're an author, happy days. You could write in the Maldives. You could write in Los Angeles. You could, I mean, I could bring a laptop and write my new novel. You know what I mean? Mm. And I think if you're writing, knowing you've got author, uh, people waiting for your books, they're going to buy it. Like Belton, he knows he writes a book and people are going to buy them. That must be a wonderful way to make a living. But there are very few people who do it. There are very few authors whose main income is just scribing books. There aren't many, you know, a hundred maybe. You know what I mean? And everyone else has to do other things to make ends meet. 
You're talking about tough gigs there. TED Talk. Now, I, I didn't realise that you had done this and I've just been on YouTube watching it as we've been speaking. Um, you, you said this went down really well and it's on a universal topic, but you found this difficult? Yeah, it's really difficult, yeah. Well, in my head, you see, I built it up because, you know, some of these people are getting... I can't, it's Ken Robinson, isn't it? I think so. Ken Robinson, the English guy, English academic, he's been viewed like 30 million times. So in my head... I'm thinking to myself, well, you know what, Dom? I might not have done live at the Apollo, even though they've done 30 series, but this TED Talk could be bigger than anything I've ever done in my life. So I built it up in my head that, that it, and I was doing a very universal subject. It's basically about development and don't write yourself off. Okay. My, I was very, I, basically I was a summer baby. I didn't realize at school that I wasn't stupid because I was very underdeveloped at school. I was failing examinations. But I realized now it wasn't because I was stupid. It's just because I was very, very young by comparison. So my talk is very universal. And I think it's very good for parents to watch. Don't write your kids off. Um, so I sort of had it in my head as a big thing. I, was, I did it in Holland in a, in a town called Breda. And I just was stupidly thinking it'll be really cosmopolitan. It'll be like Amsterdam. It'll be packed. And it was a big barn of a room, half full, full of Dutch people who were... Uh, I mean, I think when you get a, a quiet crowd, you don't know a quiet crowd till you do a quiet Dutch crowd. I got nothing. I got nothing from this room. Um, and in stand-up, I can come out of my, my act and say, well, where are you from? And get some stuff going with the room. Well, you can't do that during a TED Talk. you just got to carry on doing what you're going to do. I found it incredibly hard to, to deliver. Um, but I didn't bail. I carried on. My mouth didn't pop on me. Got through it and came off and I was dreading it coming out. But since it's come out, I have to say people have been very generous and people have really responded to it. Well, don't worry, we've got the link for that in our show notes today. So if you go into the show notes, you can just watch it on YouTube right now. Your number one book that you would tell everybody to go and read, that's not your book. The, 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 the book I've most enjoyed reading of all time was The Firm by John Grisham. Um, in terms of how compelling it was, it was so, I mean, I was young when I read it. I've never read a novel that I found as compelling and as sinister. And, and I love that book. And here's the strange thing. I read a book called The Painted House by John Grisham, which was one of the worst novels I've ever read. And I haven't read a Grisham since. Who's the one person you look at in any sector, any walk of life that is the most inspirational person to you? I tend to admire people who do things I can't do. So anyone who plays really good golf, I mean, um, you know, I'm a very, always very admiring of sports people. But in terms of comedy, there's lots of things in comedy I can't do. People who can bridge two things can do stand-up and acting and writing. So someone like, I mean, Rick, Ricky Gervais, I've never met the guy. Uh, I, I find him very, a very intimidating person. But for someone who hasn't, he didn't do the circuit, he sort of became a stand-up comedian running immediately. Mm. He's got balls and chops, and I, I, I admire his, his output. I admire the way he backs himself. Uh, he has all of the confidence that I, didn't ha I don't have, and I think, I think the very successful comedians like him have that. They have this fuck you confidence. I am going to, this is me, you know. And that, that's something which, which I think is, is quite rare. 
and then he backs it up by being make, by making people laugh. I mean, so I, I admire him. I've never met the man though. Eddie is our, you know, politically Eddie and Eddie and I are poles apart. I think his politics is bonkers, but my God, as a stand-up comic, he, the guy is still peerless. I think he's yeah. a, a magnificent comedian, and I always admired Eddie because for his bravery. I was with him the very first day he did a gig in a dress. And uh, I couldn't believe it's nervous enough going on stage, let alone going on stage looking as he did. So what's next this year? Well, I'm just about to, I'm, I'm republishing a book called um, A Man's Life. It was my third novel. And it's a story which I assembled through lots of things in my life. Um, I got bullied at school and I, I used to not back down. So what would happen with me often in a playground is I'd have to have a fight arranged after school. I think, oh, no, not another bloody fight. And the kids were bigger than me and they pick on me. And I would, rather than backing down, I'd sort of retaliate and get into these squabbles. And I was, this kid said to me in a, in a playground, okay, Holland, after school, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. I thought, oh, not again. And this big guy wandered over to me and he protected me. He said, you're not going to touch this kid. And I didn't know the bloke very well or hardly at all. And I always thought that was an amazing thing that he did for me and I thought wouldn't it be an extraordinary thing if in 30 years time in a story the boy who had been protected as in me came back and did something for that boy in return and I also thought that was an amazing piece of drama and I was writing that story that I, I call the man's life and lo and behold through the internet the, the guy who protected me came online and said, hello, Dominic Holland. Uh, my name is, and his name is Jarlof Vahi, very odd name. My name's Jarlof Vahi. You won't remember me, but I'm doing a fundraising in my village. Would you come and do a gig for me? And I was like, bloody hell, this is the bloke who helped me. So of course I went to do the gig for him. And I said to him, I'm writing a novel about you. And I said, do you remember protecting me in the playground? And he said, no. And that made it even more exciting to me. And I thought, God, he doesn't even remember this. And it's been a big formative part of my, of my life. It's a lovely story and I'm halfway through. I'm going to republish that probably, probably April. A friend of mine's doing the cover for me now. So I'm, I'm busy, Neil. You know, I haven't got a gig this week until Saturday, but I'm busy every day. I'm working and, and doing stuff and I've got four kids and, you know, I, I, my wife and I run a charity which keeps my wife very busy and I help with that, do all the writing for that. I'm up for it. And I'm, I, I'm very grateful by where I am now. I feel that a lot of people listening to this podcast will get a lot from this. Um, I think, I think the, the, the creative talent, uh, the fact that you feel like you've been knocked, but you can still go forward. Uh, the fact that you're still investigating all those different avenues and you find it exciting is incredibly inspirational for people. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, because, because it's all about, I'll tell you what I'd leave people with. I've said this in Eclipse. It's all about endeavour. So even if something completely fails, it's still been worthwhile because it created hope. Because hope is so key. We, obviously, we all need money, we all need sustenance, we all need warmth. But also, we need to have hope. And if you don't do something, then you have no hope. And, and I, I, I don't think any endeavour is wasted. And I've been fired from shows and I've tried to do things and people have rejected me. Um, but I think in trying to do things, you're better off. So if you just give up and do nothing and expect the phone to ring or wait for the phone to ring, then you're dead in the water. You're not in the game. So that's, that's, that's what I would say to people. 
keep trying because trying is worth it whether you make it or not